0: hey it's Pete Carelli here starting an independent developer studio or even working in one is a lifelong commitment to a creative vision with absolutely no guarantee of success in this series by Game on Oz we'll chat with the heroes of the industry the ones who put it all on the line for a stranger they'll never meet to have an experience they'll never see the highs are a proud stance atop a mountain of pixels whilst the lows will leave you battered bloody bruised, and in some cases Financially ruined. Bank or bust, launch or lost, this is Indie or Die. me now is Derek Bradley. He's the founder of A44. This indie development studio was founded in 2013 and made it so good to have you on the Game on Australia podcast. Thanks for joining us, Derek. Yeah, thank you so much. Happy to be here. So look, um, the way that we're doing this with a lot of our indie developers that we're talking to throughout this series is we're putting the spotlight on uh, the development studios themselves, but in particular, the people behind those studios and their journey. And you in particular, mate, I want to go back to Day Dot, all right? Talk us through how you got into the industry in the first place.
1: Sure, yeah. I mean, like, you know, I remember uh, finishing university back in the day and I'd done, like, a, a film and philosophy degree, uh, which which you know, essentially qualifies you for almost nothing. <laughs> uh, and, like, and, and applying to... Um, a bunch of studios, you know, trying to find sort of production roles or whatever I could find, uh, both game and film um, studios, and I, I really wanted to work in games nonetheless, but, but film was a good second choice, and I um, found it really difficult, so um, I actually ended up doing a, a what is called here in New Zealand anyway, a graduate diploma, which was just one year of um, learning how to do 3D art, essentially. Um, and as soon as I got out of that, um, I managed to get uh, my first job in games. Um, and I worked as a, as a 3D artist for about, I think it must be like four years after that. Uh, I did about four years of, of, of work there. Um, and, then, uh, but I, and I worked between game studios and uh, film, so I worked at Weta Digital. Uh, but eventually quit my job at Weta Digital to found A44 and uh, make Ashen.
0: Was that a really hard decision to make, to quit? and I'm going to assume that it was a like a, a comfortable and a stable job at Weta Digital to go ahead and, and get stuck into your own development studio and take on that sort of pressure?
1: Oh, yeah, it made absolutely no sense. <laughs> <laughs> the only reason you'd want to do it <laughs> is because you wanted to make a game. You know, there's, there's actually no there's no financial or, or stable reason to do such a thing. Um, and when I did it, um, so myself and two other developers essentially moved out to, let me see how to explain this, it's kind of like you've got Central Wellington, which is kind of where the digital is. Then you've got another city. Then you've got another city, which is like, you know, getting far into kind of in the countryside. Then you've got a mountain, and then you've got the small town that we moved to. So we we moved really far away uh, to where rents were cheaper. Uh, we essentially did like a hardcore game pilgrimage uh, to to go and do this, where we could, you know, still afford. Uh, to have for years on end um, quite a nice environment because we weren't paying inner city prices um, but at the same time we were 100% focused on like we're going to make a game
0: it sounds like you know when you say like a a small town um, like it sounds like you guys are I don't know like here in Australia we would call it out in the sticks somewhere is it tough putting together a game or developing a game where you guys are are you that remote
1: I've got to say, I kind of of feel for Australian developers in general with with the internet speed situations that some folks are, uh, like, kind of suffering through because, honestly, in New Zealand, we had no real issues. Like, we had pretty fast internet um, and all that kind of stuff. I think the trickiest thing is, like, we we weren't separated by, like, a physical mountain range uh, from from civilization, you know. Uh, The town that we were in was maybe, like, Three thousand people, I think, total, uh, surrounded by vineyards and stuff like that. Um, but uh, you know, it, we, we had pretty good internet, so it was it, it was actually all right from that regard. Um, I have to say, there were, like stuff like uh, going from towns called Featherston, going from Featherston to something like E3 was a bit of a culture shock every time. We were sort of, sort of doing that. Uh, yeah, we, we, we've since moved so, though, so we're closer to Wellington Central now. But yeah.
0: Mate, so that's two things you got us—you got over us uh, here in Australia. You have a better rugby team, and you've got better internet.
1: I wasn't going to
0: say. You know, I'm not going <laughs> to get into, <laughs> into the fight on the podcast. Happy for you guys to have that title. I'm going to go back to, um, you know, that moment where you guys made that decision to to leave Weta and start developing your own game studio. Do you? remember the moment you decided to tell the guys at wetter that you're leaving to do your own thing
1: yeah i mean like you know one of one of the guys who was leaving was was joining me to do this um but you know i i I went and spoke to my manager uh he essentially said like you know he can relate (laughs) because i suppose you're, you're in a studio of creatives you know everybody's is, is kind of in the in, in that sort of game because they, they want to create things and they want to do things and a lot of them have their own projects in their spare time too. So he was just then was just like it's pretty brave of you. Full support, go for it. Um, yeah, uh, I, I think it was actually pretty supportive to be honest.
0: That's good. And then what were those following moments like? You know, like those mo- did it? Did it at any point just dawn on you that that you were like, okay, we, we're taking this on. We're going to go full steam ahead far out this is real this is happening
1: oh yeah it's crazy i i feel like um having transitioned from like um you know when you have a a job or you have a contract and you get paid regularly um and all that kind of stuff um you feel like you're living in the civilized world you know you can you can pay your you can pay your bills every month you can do all that kind of stuff as soon as you like move to being any kind of business owner and this could be like whether you anything from like a tradesman to a shop owner to to running a game studio when you're the person who like the bottom line of the company equals how much money you have to live uh, it feels like much more of a, a primal sort of existence you know it feels <laughs> like you got to you got to go out and hunt for your, hunt for your dinner um and so for us like i don't I, I didn't get paid in the first 2 years of the company's existence you know wow. uh, cuz that's just is kind of me- like necessarily what you're what you're buying into and so um, you know, when we, say, uh, got funding and things like that, even when we started out because we, we got, you know, small amounts of funding as we began, we got things like an Unreal Engine dev grant, um, none of that really went to myself because it was more important to, you know, oh, now we can get another programmer uh, so we can push this thing forward. So you, you're, you're always, like, looking towards this horizon kind of thing. And I suppose as, a, as an owner and as a, a, a director, like, the more you can play the long games, on your stuff the better you know the the, the greater the rewards really um but it's just it's a very sort of different mindset i guess to what i had before but um because it's your baby and because it's something that you, you believe in you kind of do it willingly nonetheless
0: and this is the sort of thing that i was hoping to unearth on this journey talking to indie developers this this passion and this will to fight and keep pushing on i mean when you say things like i didn't pay myself you know for the first Two years—that is an extraordinary thing to have to deal with for anybody in in any sort of situation, let alone a game developer who's got a team working under them that they have to go on and and pay and make sure they keep that morale up and running because you are building towards that sort of end goal of shipping a game. How do you live when you can't pay yourself for two years?
1: You know, in my case, very supportive wife. (laughs) <laughs> it's part of it. Yeah. Um, having savings, so, you know, saved up so we could do this thing. Um, there was stuff that we sort of eventually got eventually got to pay for, you know, because, uh, you know, we we're essentially, like, staying in a house. So we, we, we did get to start to, like, pay baseline things, like the rent of the house started. Part of it started coming out because we, we designated part of it as, like, an office area, you know, but you're still paying your own, your own part of the house's rent still nonetheless. Um, So, yeah, I I, I, I guess you kind of just make the sacrifices you need to make, and um, as I say, it's almost like... I feel like it's almost treated as this, like, mystical thing where, you know, um, as an artist, it would be so much more meaningful to do these things, or um, as a uh, developer, you you have this calling to make a game. Um, For me, I wouldn't necessarily um, even specialise it that much. I would say it's kind of like... um, it's more like being a parent and looking after something, you know? Like, if, I think every parent understands it. Like, you've, you've created this thing and you want it to live and you'll do anything you can do to, to kind of, like, uh, keep it healthy and f- foster a healthy kind of a, a healthy company. Um, so I think it's, like, a very base human thing that a lot of people have experience with. I think you just find that it, it, uh, it jumps into your, into your professional life when you, when you become any kind of business owner, to be honest.
0: Can I just get one thing right here? You said living in a house, so I'm not sure if I'm clear on this. So, you and your team—were you all living together and working together under the same roof?
1: Um, not all of us. So I think we 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 rented essentially what is three houses in in the in the um in the vicinity. So, so people had, like team members were um you know uh, flatting in different houses or, or doing whatever. But we did have one centralized house where we did most of it. Towards the end, there we actually split it into two houses where, like, there was an office in one of the houses and an office in the original one. So um, that was kind of part of the plan of moving out to the countryside. Like, we didn't want to be kind of stuck in a rat hole that we could have afforded in Central City. So we wanted to have, like, a big open house and, like, you know, uh, have a garden and and, and space and all that kind of stuff. So we actually lived a bit of a charmed life, to be honest. But it was, I mean, you make trade-offs for that. You are living out in the the sticks.
0: Um, I want to talk about Ashen. This skills-based action RPG that's come out of your studio—it uh, looks absolutely extraordinary. I mean, the scores that have come out um, for this game, averaging eight and a half at the very least. Um, where did the idea for Ashen at the very beginning come from?
1: Um, the idea is, was kind of two things. Um, strange actually, I remember—I remember sitting under a tree just, just outside where the digital, and we hadn't really started working on it as such, but just kind of thinking about it. I remember sitting under a tree with um, a friend of mine who was an animator there uh, who coincidentally coincidentally was actually just hired um, as animation director uh, at the company, so it's kind of come full circle. But I remember sitting there with him, and I was, like, kind of talking to to Yannick about, like, how, um, you know, Journey had done this amazing thing with uh, with allowing people to meet and do stuff like that in that game. It had this really, like, genuine... uh, Following and and, and these genuine experiences between people. And the idea of it was how could you make an RPG that would use that journey style multiplayer and have those genuine connections and those genuine, like, fleeting moments within a multiplayer setting in an RPG. Um, I think the skill based combat really came about as a result of trying to find the anvil on which you forge those those relationships where, you know, if you compare Journey to Ashland, Journey is an absolutely friendly game where nothing can really kill you. Mm. Uh, and so we, we went right in the opposite direction and found everything that could possibly kill you <laughs> as easily as possible. Um, and uh, I think that was... It, it was definitely a reaction to, like, having these fleeting relationships and then have those fle- fleeting relationships be put under pressure on purpose to make them... Uh, more meaningful to players. Um, and that was essentially the, the, the birth of it. Um, a lot of it came down to also, you know, like setting and things like that. And, you know, uh, we, we started off with just the challenge of, like, how do we make a sunless world without just deleting the sun and calling it a day? Um, so we made this world where essentially the light comes from um, ash that um, is, is spewing forth from a vulca- volcano-like thing. Um, and, you know, it's... It, it kind of grew from there. It, it, it just sort of organically kind of all, all started to come together.
0: For those people who are listening to this series who aren't too familiar with Ashen, can you give them just a really quick snapshot of what Ashen is in your own words? I know we've sort of, you know, explained it to an extent there, but if you were to have to summarise it in a paragraph, what what is Ashen?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, Ashen's an action RPG. Um, it has stamina-based combat or high-risk combat Um similar to games like Dark Souls um, in that uh, when you're running around, you're going gonna to be in high-risk situations. Um, it has passive multiplayer, a like Journey, that uh, you don't really have to do anything to connect to people. You just run around the world, and they'll run past you, and if you stay together, you'll be able to go and adventure together. Uh, if you run apart, it'll try and connect you with somebody else. Um, and it's an open-world game, so uh, you can tackle situations from a lot of different um, angles, and you, know, you can jump down on guys who you might otherwise have to run down a corridor to beat, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, but at the same time, there are dungeons, there are bosses, uh, there are those sorts of things too, uh, which are sort of accountable to the other world.
0: You mentioned, you know, these games like Journey, um, you mentioned it's got a bit of influence from the Souls game. I mean, the Souls game, those games, as, as good as they are, they can be at times quite linear, where instead you guys went for a, an open world more sort of game what was the idea behind going for something along those open world lines over a more linear progression
1: you you know like what we refer to like stamina-based combat is something we hope to see become a genre and i think it is becoming a genre of its own to some degree um part of what we wanted to do by going open world was to make it more accessible to more people like if somebody wants a hardcore experience in action just turn off multiplayer and run at every, run everything down the corridor the way you would in Dark Souls, and you'll get a super hardcore experience. Um, but at the same time, people who want to explore more, who want to find their way up onto this cliff and then drop down on guys, or, or who want to skip certain combat elements because they found a way to like navigate around, I wanted to open up the genre to those people, uh, give them things that they can do to to kind of be palate cleansers, which counterpoint things like um, you know the dungeons, which are quite tough. Um, it's actually an interesting thing which has come about, which is a very interesting kind of analysis of our difficulty curve or the difficulty uh, spikes that we have through Ashen, which you know we uh, engineered on purpose, which is essentially you have quite a mild difficulty curve while you're in the open world. It slowly goes up, but it teaches you the basic skills that you need, but without kind of forcing them on you. And then when you head into a dungeon, you go into a much more kind of grueling, uh, tight experience. And so the difficulty curve kind of spikes on purpose, um, and which culminates at a boss, which is even tighter because you know, you're stuck in this arena with this thing that's uh, extremely powerful, and you get out of that. And then the difficulty curve kind of plateaus out on purpose again in that you head out into the open world and you have a stretch where you're kind of not under so much pressure. Uh, it's much more about listening to the music, uh, exploring around, occasionally fighting somebody, so you slowly hone your skills in this kind of traditionally grueling genre, but it's not really designed to kill you as much, you know, even though sometimes it might, it's not going to do it every five seconds. Um, But then you head into another dungeon and there's a spike on purpose. And it's it's always kind of to to give players this this sort of breather and this this entry point into the genre, I suppose you could say, uh, which the open world does, um, and definitely the fact that we made it a two-player game that people are meant to be journeying through this, this open world with you, helping you out doing things like uh, reviving you or uh, hitting an enemy who's about to kill you or whatever the case
0: may be. Derek, how do you balance something like that? Because as, as someone who is is a player of these games, that particular point about a, a game developer has always fascinated me because it just feels like it's it's not an easy thing. And you see that a lot with the community and how they um, tend to attack Development studios these days for just about anything. How do you, as a studio, balance things like uh, you know how how much HP is going to get knocked off your character when you take a hit? Um, how steep those spikes are going to be when you come up to a major boss? Like all that sort of stuff. How do you work it out? I mean, you know, I think we've been
1: we've been quite lucky in that like our our, our fan base has been really supportive. Um, we, we haven't had really really had any issues with that. And um, I would say as a as a developer putting out their first game. I would say we were just lucky uh, in that we, we it, 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 it kind of hit a, hit, a, hit a sweet spot that people were okay with. Um, you know, mostly what we do internally anyway, it's kind of tricky to do. It's like a cook tasting their own food over and over again. Eventually, you kind of become desensitized to it. Mm. But um, we play it ourselves, and we balance it. Essentially, our our new game plus kind of mode called Children of Cisna um, is what we would play uh, internally. And... We dialed that down for the base mode and, like, you kind of... um, So so, so we would play it in this this children's system mode and feel challenged. And we're like, okay, that's what the hardcore mode should feel like. Uh, The normal mode, um, then we would kind of um, try and theoretically get it to where we think it should be. But by this point, you've played, like, 500 hours of the game. It's it's very hard to find uh, perspective. So uh, what we do is um, have playtests. Constantly, we figure out where people are getting stuck. Are they taking, you know, we wanted it to be 25 hours to make it through the game. So, how do you get it that, like, you know, people are taking about 25 hours or where are they reporting that they felt um, they felt frustrated? Where are they reporting that they felt challenged, but at the same time, when they got through, they got a, a sense of kind of victory, you know? Yeah. Um, and we really go on those playtests um, quite heavily because you, you honestly cannot... Uh, you can't taste your own cooking that that much, you know. You just you, you get so
0: desensitized to it. How do you, as a game developer, keep yourself fresh so you're not becoming desensitized to the content you're producing?
1: Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think there's a couple of things. I think before you start, before before you start to get fresh, you've got to uh, you've got to do you've got to put some structure in place because otherwise your your game essentially gets lost. You need really strong pillars that are essentially going to ground whatever you're doing and that your pillars define your game on day one and when you finish the game at the end, the game should be true to those pillars because otherwise what tends to happen is the way people often uh, keep it fresh is they'll almost reinvent the game on like a six-month cycle. Every six months or even every three months, they'll be doing something different, but that's only because they've become acclimatized. So what they were doing and then they need that freshness to either motivate themselves or just because they're unsure if this is good any longer. Um, and so you need pillars to test your, your hypotheses against, essentially, uh, and then you remain true to it and you keep them strengthening in relation to that. So, you know, for us, say, um, co-op, and, and, and for making, making a good cooperative experience as a pillar, uh, we would always keep going, that, going to that and testing our assumptions against that one statement. Um, and I think once you've got that structure in place, it's the same way like writers get over writer's block or um, anything like that. I think most of your inspiration comes from the outside world, and it necessarily has to because um, as you work on a new area, you want the new ideas to flow through it, but you don't want the new area to be uh, disjointed from what the rest of the thing was. So. Yeah, I I think it's kind of like a two-pronged attack of having really good, solid foundations, good, good pillars that you've defined for your uh, as the main concepts you want your game to hit, and then being free to to pull out, to to pull in anything from the outside world. Um, Having said that, there's certainly stuff like you know balance and quality assurance and things like that where you, I I think you get more gratification out of achieving something that becomes more and more perfect, although perfection is definitely unachievable. you just get closer and closer to the mark, and, and I think that's almost like a, a different itch um, altogether to the uh, the creative one, but um, both equally satisfying, actually.
0: When you're a developer who's shipped a game, and you know some of the big names in the world are starting to review it, and you're seeing that. Well, actually, even before you see the numbers come in. What are you feeling at that point in time? Once the game is out there and people are starting to play it and you haven't seen numbers yet, what are you, what are you feeling? What's going through your mind?
1: Uh, for us, uh, or at least for myself personally, um, I was like, well, we did our best. We did everything we could have possibly did. We put our hearts into it. And like, that, the journey kind of like was why we were there. We want to make games and we want to continue making games. Uh, you know, the relationships that you made while making this game, the, the bonds you've made with your fellow developers, or even with, um, with fans and stuff that you've met at conventions, Is like that whole journey is worth it, I would say, regardless of any, any reviews that you get or regardless of how many play, people play it or whatever the case may be. But at the end of the day also, um, you know, we make a game so that people will play it. And um, quite honestly, I appreciate... Um, negative comments just as much as I appreciate positive comments on the game because that's somebody bringing their own perspective to it. You know, whether they liked it or not, it's like the game was meaningful enough that somebody wanted to go somewhere and type something about it, which to me is okay. Like, I'm fine with that. I enjoy seeing all of that stuff. Um, With regards to reviews, um, honestly, we were just like, where are the fours out of (laughs) ten? (laughs) <laughs> we were waiting for, uh, you know, because it, it, it's it's one of those things where you you just know your product too well. You 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 can't be objective about it anymore. So you kind of just assume it's going to, you know, everything feels like five out of ten to you by the time you finish the game. And so probably dial it down before because you're, you're you're kind of uh, uh, just generally skeptical about how things are going to go. Um, but you know, we were really lucky. Uh, I think the first one we saw was like a might have been like a, a, a 9 out of 10 or something like that. I, I think it might have been from GameSpot, but, like, it came out and it was just, like, disbelief. Um, and then, you know, um, I think, like, to, to the person next to me, I, I remember we were, um, yeah, we, we were at the Game Awards with um, a few of the folks who had supported us the whole way and um, literally just said to them, you know, yeah, Nine hundred ten's great, but I'm still waiting for the fours. Like, where is it? Where's the reality? Um, but it didn't come, which is really lucky, uh, and we're really happy about it. Um, it's yeah. I, I think that sort of stuff's almost too big to, to process, to be honest.
0: Yeah. As a game developer, do you find the way that different companies review? games a little bit unusual, like there's not one standardised thing across the board, because I'm looking at your scores and it's like GameSpot's 9 out of 10, IGN's 8.5 out of 10, PC Gamer 85 out of 100, which is 8.5 out of 10, and then Game Informer comes in, they're like, no, we think it's an 8 out of 10, and you're like, well, hang on a sec, why is one giving us an 8 out of 10 and one's giving us a 9 out of 10? Yeah, I mean,
1: I, and, and even Eurogamer just do their thing, right, where it's either recommended or, or not. <laughs> That's it. Uh, so, I uh, I honestly don't mind. I think each of them would have, would have, would have, would have um, uh, had their own perspective on it and, you know, to, to each gamer, like, you know, every game, isn't it, even the ones which are solidly like nines out of 10, ten, out of ten, you know, someone will play it and, and, and not enjoy it and someone will play it and enjoy it. I, I think all their perspectives are, are completely valid. Um, and to be honest, as developers, we read all of them, we check them out, like it's, it's, it's really good for us in terms of iterating, questioning ourselves. Um, we see that stuff as, as, as really amazing um, uh, kind of input into how we grow our studio, how we make better games, you know. Um, and so we kind of, like personally, I take it in that in that positive light that you know we put this out, people are going to either like it or they're not, and it's, it's, it's going to do whatever it's going to do because we've we've kind of like uh, we we, de- we definitely left it all in the ring and <laughs> and we did everything we could do. Um, so from then on, it's just these things that are. are are, are tools for learning and they're tools for growth um, as a developer, I think.
0: One of the things that, I mean, we talk a lot about at Game On Australia that, you know, because we we take a bit of social commentary along the industry as a whole, and that includes people who are actually consuming these games. And you see every now and again there are things that happen um, from the community. Like, for example, uh, um, uh, people aren't happy that um, the Epic Store is going to get six-month exclusivity over Borderlands 3, so they're going out and they're um, review-bombing Borderlands 2 on Steam. Um, I'm, I know you'd say things like uh, you take the good and the bad, but are there some places that the community can really pull their socks up in terms of the way that they give feedback to the development community?
1: Yeah, you know, like when, when we... Um... The, the, the same sort of stuff happened to us, but obviously on a much smaller degree. Like, we weren't the kind of... Um, like, Ashen isn't the kind of game, like, Borderlands has obviously got prequels and all that kind of stuff. with Lots of, lots of heraldry coming, and, and expectation coming, coming with it. Uh, we were sort of lucky in that it's our first game. It's a new studio, so we didn't quite have the same um, expectation. Of, like, you know... And, and I think right now what's happening is that players feel like the rug's been kind of pulled from under them, right? Where... Their whole all, their all library was in one place. They expected it to be in one place. Now they've got a new thing to install if they want to get to all this content. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I, I empathize, but also I, I, I do also believe at the same time, like, you know, a, the marketplace with competition is a good thing. And uh, for us, uh, we're definitely happy about being on, on the Epic game Store because um, it does present that, you know, and they've been ridiculously supportive of us. I mean, right back to... Um, giving us Unreal Engine dev grants which had nothing to do with any kind of business arrangement. Literally they sent us a graphics card and they sent us a bunch of money and they said we hope you make <laughs> we hope you make a good game and that was when we were like living in a small house in a out on the sticks in Featherston, New Zealand, you know. Um, there were no strings attached, nothing. Like you know, uh I, 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 like my appreciation of it is, they're a good company. They're trying to do a good thing. They're obviously trying to make money, which all companies do, um, mm. and that's uh, ourselves included. But um, at the same time, yeah, it's a, it's a ridiculously positive thing that we have an open marketplace. Um, it's already changed a bunch of things in the status quo of how how games uh, platforms work, and I think it will continue to do that. So yeah.
0: Um. I'm going to go all the way back to the the very beginning of this conversation and you um, gave me a metaphor, um, like, you know, being a developer and developing a game, it's like um, being a a parent. Now, I'm a parent of two girls. I've got a two-and-a-half-year-old and and I've got a a, a six-month-old. There are moments where you absolutely love them because they are doing everything right. They're eating their greens. They are um, toilet training perfectly. They are... Um, you know, doing all of the right stuff. And then there are other moments where they poo and it explodes everywhere and it goes through the nappy and all over the bed. Are those moments tougher in an indie developer situation when, um, you know, the poo has gone everywhere and you have to try and keep everybody on track?
1: <laughs> I think what you're describing there is every Monday, basically. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's kinda how of it how it goes. We tend to have the flow of like, you know, by Friday you've kind of you've sorted everything out it's just gonna be you know, smooth sailing from here and you get in on Monday and like, you know, you realise all the things you have to do. Um, I think it's just how, yeah, I I I would say that's just the nature of the game and it is very much like uh like having a child. There's always something new, and just as soon as you kind of solved out, solved like I don't know the nappy problem or something, they're out of <laughs> nappies, and now they're like getting in all the all the closets and doing whatever else they do, you know, wearing uh, mm. makeup all over the all over the walls or whatever whatever's next. Yeah. And I think that's like as the company grows, um, that's probably our most challenging thing as, a, as an indie developer is you know we started off as a team of three, then we were a team of five, and the and the, the goalposts moved. When you're a team of fifteen, and they've moved again. Uh, now we're bordering on 40, and, uh, you know, you've got all these other issues that you never had before. Um, but, yeah, uh, and, and even beyond that, it's, you know, there's stuff in your development cycle, which uh, I think we're very lucky to have kind of realised a few things um, early, but, like, you know, there's stuff like, what happens to an indie studio between games? Like, you're not a first-party studio. They just get signed up for the next, the next game immediately. So how do you look after your team? How do you, how do you pull them across? a new ip or to or not even a new ip it's like a new project should i say um
0: or even how how do like you a- how do you figure out whether or not um you know because this is a really interesting insight to what happens after a game and particularly for an indie development studio how how do you make that decision as to whether or not you guys go for a new ip or whether you continue to service the existing ip and do things like um, DLC or more content or uh, season passes, so on and so forth.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you know, mostly these are all, all deals that need to be struck. They're, they're things that you need to get funding for. Uh, for for the most part, like indie developers are not um, seeing money from their releases. If they're lucky, it'll be three months after release. If it's a sort of standard thing, you're probably looking at maybe six months after the release before you see anything and that's only if it's successful. So it's very shaky territory for an indie developer to exist after their first game and to be frank like most don't even if they do uh, they exist in name but often like two-thirds of their team had to get let go because that's just the nature of indie development Um, it's something we work really hard on I'd say my last year of development on Ashen um, half of my job was organizing that that wouldn't happen to us Mm. Um, so it's it's, and really I think part of the trick there and like you know uh, it's just realising that it's a thing and then you can work on it. It's a very solvable problem, but, you know, as an indie developer making their first game, you're also probably 100% focused on shipping that first game because that's uh, a, a kind of massive feat in itself. Um, making sure that your studio uh, survives after that is just very, very tricky. I, I think a lot of developers get themselves in a position essentially where after their first game, uh, yes, they either have to Cut down their team um, until they can staff up again, which is kind of how the film industry works to some degree. And then mm. people get you know hired on productions, um, or they end up you know maybe signing deals that aren't uh, particularly attractive. Uh, um, maybe once their game does do well, and now they're uh, uh, could have got better deals. Um, it's Definitely uh, a, a rocky terrain for a, for an indie developer right there, and, and certainly one of the, the massive hotspots that um, I would encourage any developer thinking about is just how do you uh, plan for your successive titles or your successive projects? You know,
0: being in the creative industry and creating something like a like what you guys have, skills based action RPG, something that follows. A story where you have, you know, writing and artwork and all that sort of stuff, and and this is a real multi-layered question because it it rolls along everything, you know, the story itself, the artwork, the characters designed, um, all that sort of stuff. But how do you know when you're done with a game and it's ready to ship?
1: It's kind of a like, a, uh, yeah, I suppose you're very right. It, it is a <laughs> it's definitely a multifaceted question. I mean, any game is technically a business in how it's run, you know, and or at least it's a project. Um, and so there's a scope that you hit and, uh, you know, that's your kind of like quality to content ratio that you've, uh, that, that you've essentially attained. Um, and I think you can, you, you can absolutely plan for that. You can make a, uh, uh, a, a production plan and you can plan to hit like certain QA goals. You can plan to hit, um, certain content goals, and then um, part of it is also like what, what we did and the way that we could, um, you know, beyond our essentially, you know, how many bugs does this game have left and how long is this game or how, how much stuff is there to do in this game um, was playtesting. Um, again, was uh, you know, we would get playtesters to run through it and they would say whether they would... Um, and this was, you know, you, you get people who you can essentially hire to do this as well. Um, there are studios that essentially... Uh, run play testing like this for you. Um, um, so we use a the, the, the studio called Whois, um in Canada, and um, they uh, would get random people. So like we wouldn't necessarily get to, get to choose who they did. So you, you, you know, the, the the test is quite scientific in that regard. And they would play through it and they would tell you about their experience. And they'd, they'd have some, they have a spreadsheet that they would, or like a, a questionnaire, they, they would fill in about each of the zones as they went through. Um, they would let you know by the end of the game, by the time they have finished it, um, would I recommend this game to a friend? Would I, would I buy this game when it comes out? This is it something I would play? Rate the game, all that kind of stuff. Um, things that game studios also do um, is... Uh, you know, uh, mock reviews, and so mock reviews are where you would um, essentially uh, hire reviewers who are no longer practicing reviewers, or they've stopped being reviewers um, in print, and they've they've made these sort of um, consultancies where they will uh, kind of give you an idea for what reviews you would get, you know, so you can know, like, is this game, <laughs> game going to do well or not, or, or what what is the general ecosystem of uh, review methods that I'm... Entering into, where wow. um, well you, you actually learn quite a lot about your genre through that, and you learn about where, whether your game's done or not. I think through those, because we definitely use those as kind of like touchstones uh, in both cases. So looking at reviewers and looking at um, uh, players, and deciding like, do people um, like the game enough? Um, is it like are they enjoying it? And will it review well? Um, And then you you kind of plan out what else you need to do to rectify anything that you're seeing there.
0: Some of the feedback that you guys got along the way, was it reason enough to go back and tweak um, Ashen in particular ways? Uh,
1: We didn't do any huge tweaking, but certainly stuff like, um, you know, difficulty spikes where we didn't want them or uh, things being too easy where we wanted it to be harder, for example, you know, making sure people felt like a sense of accomplishment or because just as much as we would have players like... uh, uh, really dislike having to hit their head against the boss like 20 times and not defeat it. They would also hate if they just like ran through a boss and blitzed it and like first time, it was like, was that even a boss, you know? Yeah. Uh, so there's certainly tons of that stuff which we used. Um, there weren't any huge structural changes, though. I think it was mostly just around our 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 inability to like judge our own work after a while and that we had our intentions clear. And, you know, uh, I think the playtesting Essentially, really helped for um, having those intentions actually be the reality for a first-time player uh, was the key. Um, and certainly, yeah, as I say, like r- r- uh, you-, you can hire reviewers, um, and again, this isn't hiring um, active reviewers. It's not anybody who works for any publication. I, I-, I don't think they- that their employers would like this sort of thing. <laughs> you, get, you get actual people who no longer review actively whatsoever that uh, they have probably reviewed in the past, or they're somebody who's very very knowledgeable about it, and they'll give you an idea for how they think this will review. And mostly their, um, their consultancies in their studios are based on, like, their hit rate, of, like, what's their percentage of accuracy from the past reviews, um, sort of mock reviews that they've done, in relation to what games actually did out there. Uh, yeah, definitely very useful and um, a great way to, to make sure that um, players are getting kind of the
0: quality products that you'd expect. There's a the, you know, you mentioned things like uh like going through bosses and working out whether or not one's too hard or whether or not um you know it's too easy and you're just gonna blow through them and, and I guess having those opportunities to um speak with those former reviewers gives you a little bit of feedback. But I I feel like as a development studio at, at some point you have to put your foot down and go, no, this is what we feel is is right. And regardless of the feedback, this is genuinely what we want for the game. Because, you know, you look at a, a game like Sekiro Shadows Die Twice, for example, and some of the feedback that they've gotten from the general community, from from a lot of people, a groundswell of it is, oh, it's, it's too hard. We need an easy mode. And they've turned around and go, no, this is the game. We don't care. This is what's going to happen with it. Like... Is there, is there any moments along the journey where you guys have just had to put your foot down and go, no, this is genuinely what we feel is best for the game and this is in the spirit of what we want to create?
1: Oh, yeah. I feel like their testing would have been very useful. Uh, and like I, I couldn't comment whether they've done it or not, but I, I assume they probably did because probably did, it's kind of an industry standard, but... Um, I imagine they got people to test it and they would have been like, people complained that it was too hard. Good, we're hitting the mark. We're doing exactly what we wanted. And and that's like a a flavor that they're trying to do. Um, What they also do generally do with those sorts of like, um, you know, when you essentially get like public tests like that, um, because they're quite controlled, um, you would know whether it's a hardcore gamer and if it's someone who's played games in in like, if they've played all the farm software games, you would know that you're getting like, someone who's been through Dark Souls and Bloodborne and, like, once more, and now they're getting secure, you know? Um, and I think they would have gone, like, let's see if these guys are happy. And if, if those people are happy, they're probably all right with it, even if they would have definitely thrown other people into the testing pool to see how they how they react. And I imagine there would have been definitely people who, who said it was too hard. But, yeah, I, I, I think the, the information is quite accurate and quite useful, even if you're not necessarily appeasing everybody. Uh, I think even they could definitely use it to make sure they're hitting their target audience. You know,
0: that moment as a studio when you finally ship a game—that must be a pretty extraordinary moment for you all, yeah. I mean, years of um, like testing and uh, development, and then finally you have a finished product and it's shipped. It must be pretty great.
1: Yeah, I feel like it's, it's again like one of those things that are almost like too big to understand 100% what happened you know? <laughs> when you spend like five years of your life on something, the the one moment when it's done is just, I don't know, you don't, I guess it's kind of like when you graduate from high school or something like that, you know, it kind of all culminates in like the ceremony that happens, but it it doesn't really equate either, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, as as to what the realities of it are. I I would say the moment that I've had that was probably the most, um, you know, if I get hit by a bus after this, I've done everything I needed to do, it's okay, <laughs> uh, is uh, when, um, so this was 2000 and something, I want to say 2014, 15, 2015. I can't remember what it was, um, we, when we had our first trailer in E3, I'll say 2015. Um, and so we're living, obviously, small town, New Zealand, we hadn't moved um, into the city just yet, we, we were just about to, but... Uh, My journey essentially was to go from like this count of 2,000 in New Zealand to E3, uh, get put on stage at the Microsoft uh, briefing and um, get to kind of actually have to speak uh, alongside folks like Chris Charler at the ID at Xbox uh, presentation. Have to actually say words in that setting <laughs> uh, where you can kind of feel the floor rumbling under you. You feel your own voice making the floor rumble. Uh, you sort of luckily you can't see anything. The crowd is just you, you know the, the lights kind of blind you completely. So yeah. that helped a lot. Um, and then having your trailer play at E3, I think after that, like that was just the, the amount of like sort of pressure and excitement and everything about that. Even just the contrast of going from. You know, somewhere where you wake up in the morning and you can kind of hear sheep bleating out in the distance. <laughs> that um, was, was quite an experience. I'd, I'd say that's a massive, massive high point for me.
0: I mean, I my, my next question, I was going to, before we wrap things up, I was going to throw um, three questions that I'm going to be asking every indie developer throughout this series. And you may, in fact, have answered this one just then, but I'm going to throw it to you anyway. Best thing about being an indie developer?
1: I honestly did, like, a lot of, well... Oh, there's a few things. <laughs> Pick one, I guess. Um, I, I I get a lot of satisfaction, to be honest, about the uh, just the general, like, the fact that you've got to go out and hunt for your food, you know? You feel there's a certain sense of satisfaction. It's a hit-driven industry. It's a success-driven industry. You know, we don't really have, like, like it's not like running a shop where you can stock yourselves with stuff and you're probably going to sell something, like, if you make a game that doesn't sell, it just does not sell. Mm. if you make a game that sells, it does, you know. And I, I really love that kind of like um, that sense of like, you know, you, you are a bunch of people on a pirate ship, and you are you are going out for sort the treasure. And if you if you get it, like it's on all of you, you know. And, and you kind of know that as an indie developer, you know, there's, there's kind of no second chances, and you're living by your own your own your own kind of choices, uh, which is pretty cool.
0: I suppose you being a person who graduated film and philosophy um, and you sound very philosophical, that's got to help in some way when it comes to leading such a creative organisation as an indie developer organisation.
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, I feel like in the last five years I've learned more than I've ever learned in my life. Like there's so many different things. Um, It's sort of like, expands your mind beyond what you were willing for it to be expanded to yeah. and then you just got to kind of you kind of roll with it and then you know it does it again every once in a while um yeah uh definitely being philosophical about things uh, it, i think it can be good
0: yeah. toughest thing about being an indie developer
1: um the toughest thing is probably related to the to the best thing it's like if you make a wrong move like that's it <laughs> you're done you know like there's, there's no real safety net being an indie developer, I wouldn't say. Um, I would point out, though, um, you know, being at the Game Awards this year and just seeing how many folks from Quebec, how many folks from Canada in general uh, were getting awards, um, I I think uh, Jeff Keighley even kind of pointed it out at one point because of just, like, so many Canadians going up to get awards. (laughs) Um, The government is just crazy supportive in terms of, like, how many grants they give to support the industry uh, what they kind of do to, to, um, to essentially take over. Because they're kind of taking over over there. Um, I think that would make a huge difference in, in a lot of territories, in a lot of places, um, to look to their example and, like, see how much they've, they've gained.
0: And finally, mate, um, before we wrap this up, you've, you're going to get hit with the Game on Australia regular question here. What is your favourite part of the chicken?
1: Favourite part of the chicken... Um. Definitely the thigh.
0: The thigh. Why the thigh?
1: I don't know. Just you know, dark meat. Like, cuz <laughs> like, because, because like, the, because uh, the, uh, I think the breast's a little bit dry. You know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fair enough. I'm a, I am am a breast man myself, but it, you're right. Like, it, you, you do run the risk of it drying out, you know, so you, you've got to make sure you get it right. Um, this has been... Maybe Tom McCook,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> I bet you never got that question in philosophy, eh? <laughs> never, but it was a good one. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. Uh, good on you, mate. Well, listen, um, Derek Bradley, he's the founder of A44 Studios, founded in 2013. The game is ashen, great scores across the board, and... He's been kind enough to be a part of our Indie Dev series for Game on Australia. Derek, what an absolute pleasure, mate. And we can't but wish you all the very best into the future with whatever comes next for you guys at A44. Yeah, thank you so much.